0: do you have like loads of rabbits here
1: yeah we get lots of rabbits lots of deer um lots of geese and even looking on top i mean you've got white stuff and if you dig around all of see all of those see that do you know what those little chunks are mm, no can you guess poo yep yeah, what kind of poo
0: rabbit poo
1: (laughs) close earthworm poo
0: is it I knew they pooed that was Maryland farmer Trey Hill I'm Bonnie Lee and this is The Tomorrow Farm a new podcast reimagining what's possible through agriculture we'll follow stories that take us from the tiniest of microbes to the reaches of outer space we'll travel back through history and forward to what's next Along the way, we'll talk with guests from all over the world in an open conversation about ideas and innovations that can be as controversial as they are inspiring. I'm hoping there's one thing we'll agree on. If we can keep improving agriculture, we can keep improving so much more. I think we'll also agree that Worm Poo is a strange way to start. I didn't anticipate beginning here. I don't think anyone on our production team did either. The Tomorrow Farm is brought to you by the team at Bayer. And we had a healthy debate about worm excrement. But the truth is, this first episode really is about poo. And spoiler alert, not just from worms. Trey told us a story about the future of his farm, and all farms, I think. He has two children, and he's not sure if either one of them is interested in continuing the family business. He's a fourth generation farmer, but he's not pushing his kids. The worst thing you can do, Trey says, is force someone to farm. Then one day his daughter came to him with a school project. A local college was hosting a conference. They were inviting a select group of area students to attend. It was a big deal.
2: And only two people from her class were allowed to go. Right. So they each had to write an essay for the, They had like seven kids that wanted to go. And she said, well, I'm going to write an essay. And I said, well, what's your essay going to say? And she's going to say, well, I want to be a farmer, so I need to know about climate change.
0: Interesting. So I was wow, like, wow a there we subject.
2: go. That's a, yes. that's a whole different way of thinking about what I do. Now, granted, it's because I'm talking about it all the time, you know, selling carbon credits and stuff. But I was like, this is what I hope that she does. If she wants to farm, that she's definitely thinking about farming differently than I did when I was her age. Mm -hmm. You know, less mechanistic and more flowing and less linear in a way that she's looking at things like, how do we solve climate change? How do we make, you know, lower environmental footprint and still do what we're doing? Um, So I thought that was was kind of a neat day.
0: Trey's farm wasn't what I expected a farm to be. From Baltimore, we crossed the Chesapeake Bay Bridge and wound our way through a number of quaint Maryland towns. Right behind his parents' house, The fields stop where the bay begins. They are right on the water. It's beautiful, even in the winter. Maybe it's the proximity to the ocean, or his children, or perhaps both. Maybe that's why Trey is thinking so much about climate change. When most of us think about climate change, we think about electric cars, or better yet, taking an electric bus. Maybe we wash our clothes in cold water instead of hot to conserve energy. We've changed all our light bulbs and hopefully won't change them again for more than a decade. We've realized that pretty much everything has a carbon footprint, including our actual footprints. How much energy went into making, marketing and shipping my new sneakers. The challenge seems daunting, but there are innovations that give us all reasons to be optimistic. In Scotland, there's a team developing an ocean turbine that captures tidal energy. One single turbine could power as many as 1,700 homes for an entire year. And in Switzerland, a physicist is working on a process to turn water into gasoline. We'll meet him in about half an hour. Trey Hill, meanwhile, is thinking about earthworm poo, roots, and soil. And I think he's onto something. We'll come back to Trey, his farm and his carbon credit business later. First, I wanted to understand the relationship between agriculture and climate change. So I talked to someone who's been working on just that for more than two decades.
3: My name is Christine Bonalino. I'm an agronomist by education. I'm working for Bayer for now around 22 years. I'm based in Germany at the headquarters of BioCrop Science, and I'm leading a sustainable agriculture group.
0: Christine has been in this position for about a year and a half, but sustainability has been close to her heart and to her work for years. She has always seen it as a big driver and a big problem to solve.
3: Absolutely, yes. Agriculture is overall responsible for uh, 24% of the global greenhouse gas emissions triggered by human activities. And it's agriculture and food system, let's say. And uh, what needs to be addressed in our space is especially about the field greenhouse gas emissions per cropping systems and to best combine the uh, technologies, the seeds, the varieties who will be best produced per acre, per per surface, at the same time with a minimum use of natural
0: resources. 24% of global greenhouse gas emissions. That's a big number. And there are various sources. Some of it comes from livestock. Some is the result of deforestation, which has stopped or slowed in many parts of the world and continues in others. A small portion is from what the EPA calls other land use. And within that 24% are emissions from fields of corn, wheat, rice and other crops. That last category is where Christine and her team focus their efforts. And the challenge is complex.
3: We are living today into an agriculture which has a lot of pressure because we need to deliver against a paradox. In one hand, You need to increase production because you have a growing population. It's expecting to grow by 2.2 billion by 2050. At the same time, you need to reduce environmental pressure from agriculture.
0: A paradox. I hadn't thought about it that way before, but it's true. And probably not for agriculture alone. It's tempting to think about reducing energy use in terms of simply using less, like those energy efficient light bulbs. But at the same time, we're growing. It's not just a matter of producing the same amount more efficiently. We need to produce more while using a lot less. Those 2.2 billion people Christine mentioned, that's an increase of about 28%. We've faced global food challenges before. In 1798, British economist Thomas Malthus wrote an essay on the principle of population. He argued that population growth would always naturally outpace food production. If left unchecked, we would consistently face mass hunger and starvation. It was unavoidable. His theory would become known as the Malthusian Trap. His predictions? Malthusian catastrophes. While controversial even then, they've persisted.
4: I'm going to give you a little bit of a, maybe a wrong date here, but mid to late 60s, Paul Ehrlich published a book called The Population Bomb.
0: That's Andy Knepp. He's the head of environmental strategy and industry activation at Bayer.
4: And again, paraphrasing a little bit here, but but his prediction was in the population bomb, look, it's sort of a Malthusian prediction. We don't have enough land to produce the food that we need to you know based on our current population growth predictions. And his specific sort of prediction was in the eighties, we're gonna see mass starvation of millions if not hundreds of millions of people, particularly on the Indian subcontinent, because we just can't produce enough food for them. And the Green Revolution addressed that in a way that those predictions never came true.
0: Wait, let's back up a bit. The Green Revolution, that's an entire episode of its own. Briefly, here's what happened. In the 1940s and 50s, agronomist, plant breeder, and agricultural superhero Norman Borlaug set out to help improve wheat production in Mexico. Farmers were fighting a losing battle against stem rusts. Harvests were low. Borlaug crossed thousands of varieties to create disease-resistant wheat, but he wasn't finished. By taking advantage of new fertilizer to improve the Mexican soils, he also wanted to increase the amount of grain per plant. He did, but they fell over. The extra weight made the new disease-resistant, high-yielding wheat plants too top-heavy. So he crossed them with shorter varieties to breed sturdier, more productive and more resilient crops. And it worked. Mexico became a net exporter of wheat. His approach was replicated all over the world. Borlaug was credited with saving a billion lives by increasing global food production. And in 1970, he won the Nobel Peace Prize. That, in a nutshell, is the Green Revolution. Except... Borlaug would be the first to remind us that he stood on the shoulders of giants who came before him and worked alongside him, that much of his work wouldn't have been possible without that new fertilizer. And that takes us back to the early 1900s, to German chemists Fritz Haber and Karl Bosch, to their Haber-Bosch process, and back to my conversation with Andy Nepp.
4: Haber-Bosch was a, a process of very efficiently creating nitrogen fertilizer cost effectively, uh, making it available in, in broad quantities. So before Haberbosch, what did we do? Well, we, we went to uh, sometimes tropical areas of the worlds and we, we mined bat guano, was one of the key sources of, of nitrogen. And um, what is it? Bat, bat guano, um, bat droppings.
0: See, I told you, more poo.
4: So actually moving into caves or, or sometimes from seabirds, actually mining their, their excrement was, was very high in, in nitrogen and we actually caused tremendous environmental harm prior to Haberbosch because there was a huge trade in this. It's an extractive sort of uh, procedure, clearly disruptive to native environments, native habitats for migrating bird species. If you can imagine going into a cave and mining bat guano, that's probably going to require some level of disruption to those bat colonies. So that was, that was one of the ways that we sourced uh, nitrogen fertilizer. And the other one would just be you know animal manure.
0: And there we go again. Our poo counter is now up to four. Earthworms, bats, birds and livestock. If you're still wondering, how relevant is all this excrement? Well, it was important enough to start a war. In 1864, Spain attempted to reclaim dominion over Peru and Chile. Steam-powered, ironclad warships fought a series of naval battles along the coasts of the former colonies. It was the Spanish-South American war but it was also known as the Chincha Islands War because that's where it started. Spain seized the islands in a shrewd strategic move. They were extremely rich in guano deposits. The mining operations there produced as much as 60% of the Peruvian government's annual revenue. The war had long since been over, but by 1913, the Haberbosch process had revolutionized the fertilizer industry. We no longer had to mine it, disrupt native ecosystems for it, or wage wars over it, we could manufacture it. The ability to increase soil fertility was a critical piece of Borlaug's Green Revolution puzzle. A billion lives were saved, but what does it have to do with climate change? The benefits of Haber-Bosch came at a cost. What Christine would refer to as part of the paradox, and what Andy calls trade-offs.
4: If we want to talk about environmental costs, I mean, there's, there's multiple ways to look at it. Again, from a, from a climate change perspective, you know, the, the actual process, the Hopperbosch process is very energy intensive. And from a raw material perspective, you know, there's, a, there's an enormous carbon footprint related to the Hopperbosch process. So much so that oftentimes when we think about how do we quantify the, the, the greenhouse gas emissions related to corn production, the nitrogen component to it is one of the largest pieces. So it's the production, uh, of the of the nitrogen fertilizer through the Haber-Bosch process. The other piece of that is, you know, what, what's the fate of the nitrogen in the environment? And one of the fates of nitrogen in the environment is to create nitrous oxide.
0: Three percent. That's the footprint Andy was talking about. The Haber-Bosch process accounts for about three percent of the world's natural gas consumptions every year and the production and use of synthetic fertilizers contributes about 3% of the annual greenhouse gas emissions. It's a trade-off. Feeding a billion people takes energy. Something very interesting I learned from Andy though. It's not all crops require nitrogen fertilizer. Some of them can, well, create their own in a way.
4: A soybean plant has this wonderful Symbiotic biological relationship where there's there's actual organisms that grow in in coordination with the soybean root and actually provide it nitrogen that it pulls from the air uh in nitrogen gas form into a, a form that's available for for soybeans. For corn, we don't have that. It doesn't right. work that so way. So does
0: that mean soybean need even less?
4: Soybeans nitrogen? We, we wouldn't fertilize nitrogen. Ah, okay. Not, not at all. Right. Um there's no need for it. But corn, we we need to supply that nitrogen.
0: I couldn't help but wonder though. If corn could have a similar relationship at some point, there's an incredibly rich world of tiny bugs and microscopic organisms living in the soil beneath our feet. Millions upon millions of species, all with a role to play, a job to do. They have networks and relationships, some of them with corn.
4: You know, there's this marvelous association. If you dig a corn plant up out of the soil uh, and you say, I'm gonna wash the soil off of the root system, a lot of times there's, you know, in cor- corn plant roots are, you know, these nice bright white colored plant material. A lot of times there's, there's this sticky coating of soil that it is actually very difficult to remove from the, from the corn plant root. And what that sticky layer of soil is, is actually a lot of those biological organisms that actually form an association with the microscopic level of, of rooting that, that, uh, that we don't see. But they're living in proximity, they call it the rhizosheath. And those, those, those organisms live in proximity with the corn plant. Again, the corn plant actually exudes some sugars, and so those microorganisms get a little bit of something for their proximity, but they also tend to give a little bit of something. They give
0: a little bit of something in return. In some cases, Andy said that might be phosphorus, another important plant nutrient. But so far, not nitrogen. At least not at the levels that crops like corn, wheat, and rice require. With millions of organisms in the soil, it still made me wonder, if there isn't one out there somewhere up for the task, is it even possible? As it turns out, I'm not the only one who's curious. Bayer has partnered with a company called Ginkgo Bioworks to explore answers to that very question. In addition to finding the best microbes, they're asking another question. Can we also enhance the microbes' ability to deliver nitrogen? It's still early, but if successful, maybe we're on the cusp of the next leap in fertilization. Not to mention a dramatic shift in agricultural greenhouse gas emissions. Oh wait, before we let Andy go, while the potential of microbial solutions is inspiring, there's something else. At one point in our conversation, Andy started digging through his phone, so looking for a long-lost stat.
4: Here's, here's something interesting. If we go back to, so just to 1980, a pretty good snapshot historically, our actual rate of nitrogen application, the amount of nitrogen that we're using uh, in the U.S. for corn production has basically flat.
0: But the corn harvests weren't they were up significantly.
4: So if you think about the nitrogen use rate being flat, but our yield's going up, I mean, that's a definition of of that gain of of efficiency, but they actually, it calculates out if you you plot it out to a 67% increase since 1980 in nitrogen use efficiency in our U.S. corn production. And so the the comparator, maybe just to think about it, is fuel efficiency in our automotive fleet.
0: Now, admittedly, measuring fuel efficiency can be tricky. Automotive manufacturers have diverse portfolios. They might introduce electric or hybrid options that improve the average fuel economy without perhaps making as much progress in an individual model. Like I said, it's tricky.
4: But incorporating all that, the actual efficiency of the U.S. fleet, and uh, and this is some some data that I have in front of me, uh, has increased in that same time period by 32%. So in, in agriculture, and nitrogen use efficiency in corn production, we're 2x what the fuel efficiency increases are, um, have been for, for the automotive fleet. So again, I think from a societal perspective, I think all of us would say, yeah, our, our cars are way more fuel efficient than what they were 30 years ago. But that's not keeping pace with what we've seen happen in agriculture.
5: Well, efficiency is important in some larger sense, but if we're going to use metrics to evaluate progress, or if consumers are going to have a metric to make decisions, there's two metrics. One is cost, monetary cost, and the other is the environmental footprint You know, generally, but really to make it easy to measure and succinct, it would be carbon dioxide per kilometer per mile. Fuel efficiency was a great metric when there was only one fuel gasoline. But now as we have diverse fuels and use our vehicles differently, it's not so much.
0: This is Dr. Daniel Sperling. He's a professor at the University of California, Davis. It's purely a coincidence, but his journey also started on a farm.
5: So I started as a farm boy on a chicken farm. I was always curious about the world and went off to college. I was in the Peace Corps as an urban planner in the country of Honduras in Central America, worked for the U.S. CPA, went back to graduate school, got a Ph.D., and I've been at University of California, Davis as a professor for many, many years. I started up a big Institute of Transportation Studies and many other centers as well. I was appointed to be a board member for the California Air Resources Board about 12 or 13 years ago. And in in that role, I oversee all of the transportation climate policies for California. Wow.
0: Now, that's a certainly really <laughs> a really nice little synopsis of your journey. But what led you to transportation?
5: Well, I started out focusing more on urban planning and tr- and environment, and I realized that The transportation is so central to people's lives, Mm. and it just really intrigued me. And at first, I thought, okay, I'm going to focus on mass transit. We're going to do something really good for humanity, but soon realized that it's much more complicated than that. And so I did reconnect with my environmental interests. I focused Mm -hmm. on alternative fuels for many years, air pollution, and more recently, climate change. Transportation accounts for the largest share of greenhouse gas emissions of any sector, at least in the U.S. it does. In some countries, that's not true. In the U.S. it does. It's about a third of all of of the greenhouse gas emissions come from transportation. And most of that come from our, our vehicles, our passenger cars. And so the question is, how do we reduce the emissions from our vehicles? And the number one strategy by far is making them electric.
0: Dr. Sperling has quite literally written the book, multiple books in fact, on this strategy. In his vision of the future, every vehicle is electric, even small planes. But there's a second strategy as well. He wants us to drive less. He doesn't mean moving less, just driving less.
5: Okay, here's the vision of the future. It's a vehicle that is automated, so no driver, and therefore inexpensive to operate. It that it's pooled, so that it picks up multiple uh, travelers, and there'll be an, it's used enough so that the detours are minimal. You know, now if you only have a few people using it, you have to make a lot of detours. But if everyone's using it, you just pick up people along the way and drop them off along the way. You have a slight Amount of delay when you stop and start, but for the most part, it's very direct. It doesn't add more than a few minutes to your trip and it's much less expensive. Now, one of the advantages of sharing is that you reduce the cost of that travel because now you're dividing it by more people. And there's one more advantage of this future most of us would rather be chauffeured. Than to drive ourselves.
0: That's interesting. That's interesting.
5: I gave up my car a year ago, partly as a professional experiment, partly because I really thought it was a good idea. One, I've saved a lot of money. Number two, I save so much time because I get chauffeured. I get in, the, I press a button, the vehicle comes, it gets me, and I go off and I do my work. I prepare my notes, I prepare for a meeting, I read, I sleep. I've gained back a lot of time.
0: Not to mention reducing the number of vehicles. Did you know most of our cars sit unused 95% of the time? So for 22 hours and 48 minutes out of every day, they're just taking up space and depreciating in value. In the future, we won't own a vehicle. Cars will be electric, automated and shared or pooled Those are the three revolutions Dr. Sperling says add up to a more sustainable automotive industry. And the game changer, he said, what made it possible wasn't a new kind of car, it was a new kind of phone.
5: You know, let me say that everything changed about 10 or 12 years ago because for me, you know, when when these new kinds of mobility services came into being, I could not have given up my car 10 years ago. But I can now because I know no matter where I am, anytime I can press a button and a vehicle will come and pick me up and take me where I need to go. I'll never be lost. I'll never be stranded. And that was not true. You know, Mm -hmm. outside of an inner city area where there's a lot of public transportation, that was not true. And that is true now. And I think that's putting the idea in many people's heads that they really don't need to have their own personal vehicle, certainly not two or three of them, and that there is another future that's possible.
0: So basically, I hit a button on my ride-sharing app, and in the process, I'm revolutionizing the automotive industry. But what about all those drivers, the gig economy? What's this future look like for them?
5: When we talk about automation, the first thing that comes to your mind is loss of jobs. In this case, that would not be true. And that's because, think about it right now, with cars, we drive our own cars. This is our own personal activity, it's not compensated, it's our time. And we're talking about transitioning away from this personal uncompensated activity into a business activity. So now we're going to have all of these companies and businesses providing this mobility. And no, there won't be very very many, if any, drivers. But there's all the people that are running these companies. There's the customer care people. There's the accountants. There's even the coders uh, for these services, the management. And so as we move to an automated uh, passenger transportation system where we're going to see more jobs
0: more jobs and also more sustainable more accessible more equitable more efficient and more affordable
5: right now in the u.s. the average cost of owning and operating a car is eight thousand five hundred dollars per year eighty five hundred dollars per year And that's a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And then if you take into account all the money we spend on building the roads and the parking, there's an average of about five parking spaces for every car in most metropolitan areas. I mean, that's a lot of space. You know, five spaces for just each car that exists.
6: Mm -hmm.
5: Look at our houses. We devote so much space to our garages. What if we could use those garages for something else? All of that parking and curb space and streets, we could use it for other uses as well. So that's the point of these three revolutions. And that is bringing them all together in a way that we provide better mobility and accessibility, but at the same time have less vehicle use.
0: I'm drinking the Kool-Aid at this point. I mean, I'm in. Future, come for me around. Except, it's just, I love my car. I do. It's emotional. And it's not just me. There are songs about cars, movies about cars, entire festivals and events about cars. Some people put bumper stickers on their cars about their cars. And... What about, you know, making out in the back seat of a car? Or professional auto racing circuits, family road trips? What will grown men buy when they have a midlife crisis? We have a car culture. Will that all change?
5: Well, that emotional connection has already started to change. So when I was young, all of my friends were out there with their cars every night, every weekend, fixing it, carburetors, transmissions, taking the car apart, putting it back together. You know, when you were 16, uh, which was at where I was, that was the age you could get a license. You were there that day. You were there to get your license. Exactly. And that's changed because, you know, if you look at young people, for instance, we, we see the statistics that younger people are getting their license later. Fewer of them are getting licenses. It's lost that status that mm-hmm. cars used to have.
0: My mind was racing, thinking of a future without driving. Autonomous cars have been a dream for the auto industry since as early as 1939. But the proving ground for driverless transportation wasn't a road or a car test facility. It was a farm. The first self-driving vehicle, was a tractor. Today, farmers can plant an entire field with exacting precision without even touching the steering wheel. In the future, will tractors be electric too? Maybe. But Gianluca is working on another option.
6: I'm Gianluca Ambrosetti. I'm a physicist, but I'm working since several years in the field of energy, more precisely in uh, solar. And Since 2016, I've started Sinhelion. Which is a company working in the development of solar fuels, which are a clean substitute to existing fossil fuels.
0: Which you're going to explain to me because I'm I'm reading it and I'm I'm looking at your website. I'm thinking, yeah, I think I get it. No, I don't get it. I I mean, how did this all begin?
6: I tell you, that's still in 16, <laughs> when we were saying, when I was explaining to friends what we were doing, people were saying, okay, really and this was my sister always says the joke what does your brother do i we said well he transforms water into gasoline and everybody looks like oh really in italian it it rings even this "Transforma l'acqua in benzina
0: <laughs> It's like, <laughs> like yeah it's like completely alien how do you do that everyone will be asking the question so how do you do that could you could you just explain to me how that happens
6: yeah i mean i'll explain uh, the way we do it as a general framework, we basically reverse combustion. If you take a fuel and you burn it with oxygen, you will have a release of heat, and uh, the products are CO2 and water vapor. Now, if you <laughs> if you take water vapor and CO2 and you put energy in a right chemical environment, you could reverse the process, and you get back to the fuel. And the oxygen somewhere is released, of course. Of course, it is not at all easy to do. I mean, we follow high temperature thermochemical processes. We work at temperatures that are in the order of 1,000, 1,500 degrees Celsius, so very, very high. And there you can work with some specific processes driven by this heat and to obtain some one called precursor is a mixture of hydrogen and CO, is called synthesis gas. And this synthesis gas then can be produced further into liquid fuels.
0: The heat is solar powered, but they aren't the type of solar panels you're probably used to seeing. Gianluca's arrays use mirrors to concentrate the sun's radiation. That approach isn't new, but the rest of the process is.
6: Of course, you know to power a car. I mean, like you know, fuels are very dense. You need, <laughs> and the problem is that solar is not so, uh, so dense. Is it that solar is quite a dilute resource? Of course, you need very, very large surfaces to produce relevant quantities of of fuel.
0: Those surfaces, Januca explained, didn't need to be land that had other uses like farmland or forests. It could be in the desert where there's a lot of sunshine. Sinhelion is still in its infancy. They won't go to market for a few years. It will be decades later before even a small fraction of the fuel industry is powered by Luca's technology. But the potential is exciting.
6: Yeah, this is uh, let's say our end vision. You know, it's basically the end vision of of the whole technologies to have basically this circularity in terms of the carbon circularity. So basically, I say you know, you take a fuel, you burn it, uh, and uh, you release, of course, heat, uh, and then you have carbon dioxide and water. You you then need to somewhere capture. I mean, either you capture at the point of emission. Or you have air captures, as like Climeworks or other emerging companies in the field do. And once you have captured, you bring it, put it back into the (laughs) reversion process. Is the one that we do. And with the solar heat, we drive it back. And then via synthesis process, we go back to the fuel and the fuel is then burned again and the cycle is closed.
0: A cycle or a closed loop. The capture is just as challenging as the synthesis with what Gianluca calls non irrelevant costs. But it's possible.
6: Okay, whenever you want, I can start.
0: I forgot to mention, Gianluca is also a performing jazz musician. You're obviously an accomplished player, but do you can, do you go off in your mind and you're thinking up solutions and more ideas or are you just focused on the music?
6: When I uh, so, Sometimes actually I, I go in after having worked and I continue to think and I get to ideas. I really do get to do ideas, you? which is funny. I mean, the music that mm. comes out is perhaps debatable. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I could have listened to Gianluca play for hours on end, but it was time we head back to the farm to my new friend who helped us start this episode. This time, I'll let him introduce himself.
2: My name's Trey Hill. I own and run Harborview Farms with my father. Uh, we're a large-scale corn, wheat, and soybean grower right here in Rock Hall, Maryland on the Chesapeake Bay.
0: He's a corn farmer, a wheat farmer, a soybean farmer, and a carbon farmer.
2: I like to think of something that I don't know what you would call it. I don't know that I have an official term, whether it be climate smart or carbon smart or carbon farming. But yeah, what we're trying to do is put as much carbon back into the soil as we can every year.
0: And then he sells it. It doesn't actually change hands. It stays in Trey's soil, but he sells a carbon credit. Who's buying? While not every company can reduce energy use to the same degree, those that want to offset their footprint can purchase one of Trey's credits in a carbon marketplace. But how? How do you put carbon into the soil in the first place?
2: Well, as as a plant grows, it pulls carbon out of the air and puts it back into the soil. That's what photosynthesis is. It's taking carbon and sunlight and water combining them and then turning it into carbon and sugar. Mm-hmm. So what we're trying to do is replicate that on our farm, which is what, what we've been doing for years is growing corn and soybeans. Unfortunately, if you till the ground, if you turn the ground over, all that carbon gets released back into the air, gets released back into the atmosphere. So we started to, to no-till, so we don't use any tillage. We never turn the ground, we never run a rotary tiller. What we do is we just direct seed directly into the field So as we've evolved, what's happened then is we now grow crops subsequent to our crops.
0: They're called cover crops. After Trey harvests his corn and soy, he plants clover, cereals, African cabbage, radishes and a mix of about 10 different types of seeds. They grow during the off-season and he never plows. Before I met Trey, I had this vision of what a healthy farm would look like, ready to be planted for the year. Big rolling fields of rich brown soil, what a weed in sight. Neat little uniform rows ready to welcome the seeds.
2: Which is completely wrong.
0: Which Trey politely reminded me is entirely inaccurate. He doesn't ever want to see the soil, unless he's looking for it. He keeps it covered, keeps it active, and that keeps it healthy. That vision I had though is not unlike how he and other farmers used to think. Most still do. But Trey has found a better way. He invited me outside to walk the field and see for myself. This is what it looks like when it hasn't been tilled, which just looks like a normal, a normal field. Right,
2: but if we were in where, the way I used to farm, this would all be brown and yes. there wouldn't be anything growing. Whereas if we walk out here, you can see lots of stuff growing.
0: Oh my goodness. Turnips.
2: You have to. You have to keep walking. You won't get dirty. Oh, but you have to be careful.
0: So this is so not my idea of a farmed field because yeah. it just it just looks like a field.
2: Right. So imagine what I'm going through as a farmer, thinking the same thing. Right. So if we walk out here, well, as you can see, we've got lots of different stuff growing. Let's find a good spot. Let's get right
1: over
0: here. But you can see the remnants of the corn, the corn kernels. Trey doesn't plow, but occasionally he'll dig. He stuck his shovel in the ground and pried up a small chunk of his Maryland farm so we could both take a closer look at the world underneath.
2: Let's see how pretty that is. And see the color in the soil, see the diversity in the soil. That's what I like. I mean, I'm looking
0: down and I can see pink, purple, yellows, greens, whites. So much biodiversity in this one... So, yeah, tiny I mean, bit that you've dug up
2: worm worm and that's just kind of indicators kind of our key indicators so it's hard mm-hmm. to measure soil health mm. but pretty much if you have earthworms you have healthy soil
1: the earthworms their channels can live up to 25 years so if you look take this earthworm pocket so it was a little too crumbly so what it'll do so where this earthworm cavity is mm. The roots will follow
2: down in that cavity. Right. This earthworm poo, the earthworms have just come up and pulled all this stuff down into the hole. Yeah. Eaten it and cycled it into nutrients.
0: Yeah. Well, it looks just like the soil, except they're, like, round.
2: So now my corn crop will follow the earthworm channels down. Yeah. There's a spider in there as well. Is there?
0: Yeah. See? Just by the corn kernel. It's gone back in. You see it? I didn't see it. There you go. Yep.
2: So you'll come out some days and there'll be a web across the entire field. Wow. Like so you'll see it in the morning dew. It's beautiful. And it'll be from all the spiders, but the spiders are what are eating our slugs. Slugs are bad. Is,
1: which so, is what you want. Yeah. Right. So, just some.
0: That's so, really, your, you're slowly making your job redundant. No, I'm kidding.
1: Hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> <I'm>
0: kidding.
1: <laughs> and if you look, you can start to see. So clever. Sorry, I should have laughed harder, right? Uh, Yes, I am funny. Um, (laughs) If you have to tell people, I think that means... Um, I've been told. So you
0: can see that
1: this layer of soil is slightly darker Mm -hmm. than down below it. Mm -hmm. What's that showing me is
2: that we're building organic matter. Because when we were plowing, we were plowing to a depth of about 16 inches. Right. So the soil would have been completely homogenized within that 16 inches. It would have all been the same.
0: So this field hasn't been...
2: It's probably been 10 years since it's been tilled. Wow. And you can see that we're starting to build a layer on top. So the more earthworms we get, the faster this will cycle down. So Mm -hmm. this is essentially your carbon. This darker layer of soil is where the soil organic carbon is building. Where more organic matter is building. And then the earthworms will slowly mix that down through the entire soil profile.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I visited Trace Farm at the end of February. It was winter, but not too cold. And his fields were green, with all those other brilliant colours peeking through. I assumed that soil needed to rest, that it could use a break after a long season of growing corn or beans. But if there wasn't a farm on Trey's property, the soil wouldn't be taking any time off. It doesn't want to, he told me. If we're lazy for months on end, we fall out of shape. But if we exercise regularly, we stay fit and healthy. Trey believes soil is the same, and it's not just good for his farm, it's good for the planet. He's working with a tech startup out of Seattle to measure the amount of carbon he's able to capture. They use a model. It's more accurate, as it turns out, than random soil samples. What did the model have to say? Harborview Farms is storing one tonne of carbon per acre. That's impressive on its own, and even more so when you add up all 5,000 acres or about 2,000 hectares that they farm. Trey recently made his first purchase with the revenue from selling carbon credits, new parts to upgrade his planters. But getting to this point was as much about a mindset change as it was a financial equation.
2: The funny thing with this stuff is it looks like you have this really huge amount of diversification, right? You've got all these differences in the soil and you have all these differences in plants. Mm. So as a farmer, I always thought that this would be much worse because when it was all brown, it looked the same. And as a farmer, you want everything to plant the same, you want everything to be the same so that your crop comes up the same, and that's how you get optimum production. The problem was when there was nothing living out here, the ground was actually quite different. Mm-hmm. So where you had ground that wasn't covered very well, it would be one temperature and one amount of soil, and where it was covered well, you would have it very well. So we, we, we couldn't grow no-till very well because it wasn't very consistent, even though it looked consistent. Yeah. But what we're finding is that with all this diversity, Every shovel pool that we go out here and pick up, the soil is going to look the same. So the nursery that we're building for our seeds through all this diversity is actually much more consistent and gives us much better plants and much healthier plants by putting them into that diverse root zone than we did when we had nothing. Yes. But it goes against the way you would think because it looks completely different than what's actually going on
0: he had to challenge the way he thought about farming and he needed the latest technology to make it work. Trey's father couldn't have farmed in this way, at least not profitably, and not while meeting production needs. Farmers till the ground to control weeds, weeds that would otherwise steal the sun, water and nutrients their crops need. But Trey hasn't plowed his fields for years and it's only because he has more modern ways to protect his crops better herbicides and better seeds. When he's ready to plant, he'll eventually have to spray his cover crops so they don't compete with his corn and soy. But even that is good for the soil. As the cereals and clover and turnips all start to break down, they create a nursery for his young crops. They keep the soil cooler in the summer. They help the fields retain water. And as they slowly decompose, they return more organic matter and nutrients back to the earth. Trey's an early adopter. There aren't a lot of farmers farming the way he does. He and his tech startup partners know the demand for carbon credits just isn't quite there yet, but they're optimistic.
2: We farm this way because we believe in it. So we would do it probably regardless, but the idea behind the marketplace is that as it becomes stronger, as it becomes more valuable, that eventually it'll start to get farmers that are tilling the ground, that aren't planting cover crops, to initiate those processes that will help with climate change in a way that's fine and makes it more financially feasible.
0: I knew Trey was a carbon farmer before meeting with him, but I didn't expect all the other benefits to his soil health, to his crops, for biodiversity below the ground and above it. He uses about 80% less insecticide now. And while it required a psychological shift to make the transition, he says farming this way is less risky too. Before I said goodbye, I did what any self-respecting girl who spent much of her life in cities like London, Madrid and Kuala Lumpur would do. I asked him for a tractor ride. Okay, to be fair, I kind of guilted him into it. Oh, and the sun's come out for this little
1: ride as well. So yes, we have
2: heat and air conditioning, (laughs) as you were shocked to find out.
0: I am shocked, yeah. As
2: well
1: as heated seats, radio, all that stuff. It's
0: comfortable in here.
1: Yeah, they're
2: very
0: comfortable. Yeah, yeah. I could could do this. We drove down one of those long, single-lane dirt farm roads between fields that you imagine when you close your eyes and think about what a farm looks like. But in these fields, there was this huge flock of geese.
2: The Canadian geese and all the wildlife like the cover crop. Oh, my
0: goodness, yes. So they're in there eating.
2: They're all starting to fly north, so they're filling their bellies up before they, you know,
0: and had, they like
2: what, rad. the clover? Uh, they'll eat the clover and the cereals. They okay. love cereals. They won't they don't like radish and they don't like turnips, they don't like the more bitter crops. See,
0: this is just not something you would see on a farmed field ever.
2: No, but you should.
0: That's right. Right. You as the tractor approached, the birds all took off in unison, as if they made a unanimous group decision. There were so many of them, you almost couldn't see the sky beyond. The 1980s doesn't seem that long ago. I'm dating myself here, but I still remember wearing leg warmers and making mixtapes. I had entire outfits that were neon and spandex. But since then, we've increased fuel efficiency by 32%. We've doubled that rate in nitrogen efficiency on the farm, 67%. What kind of progress will the next 40 years hold? Will we all be sharing driverless electric vehicles? Maybe we'll be turning water into gasoline or using small microscopic bugs to help plants pull fertilizer out of thin air. There are 1.5 billion hectares of farmland in the world today. That's about 3.7 billion acres. They can't all be farmed the same way traders. But if even a small percentage of them were, how much carbon could we bring back to the soil, where it can benefit crops and the environment? We have more episodes. This is just the beginning. There's so much more that's possible. You can find episodes two through four of The Tomorrow Farm wherever you find your podcasts. Or if you want the full visual experience with behind-the-scenes footage and more info that couldn't be squeezed into each episode, go to cropscience.bea.com. That's cropscience.bea.com. We owe so many people a debt of gratitude for contributing to this episode. Thank you to Christine brunel lignot Andy Nepp, Trey Hill, Dr. Daniel Sperling and the talented Dr. Gianluca Ambrosetti for spending so much time with us and helping to tell this story. To our audio crew, Bernie, Jay and Brent, you guys are the best. We've had a video crew following us around as well. Sean, Kirsten and Brandon, thank you for always finding our good side, my good side, and making us laugh along the way. None of this works without our producer, Thomas. And thank you to the team at Bayer who made this possible. Beth, Danielle, Lindsay, Chris, and our road warrior, our leader every step of the way, Julia. I'll see you on the next episode of The Tomorrow Farm. Don't wait. It's available right now. Go, go, go.